fun lawyer show. I just started a superhuman law division, and I want you to be the face of it. So imagine running a superhuman law division of a law firm. That's exactly what we're going to talk about here. And we're going to start off the series by reviewing the new She-Hulk attorney at law on Disney+. Plus. So let's dive into episode two of Superhuman Law Division. I'm Greg Lambert, and alongside with my Superhuman Law Division co-counsel, Joshua Lennon. Joshua, it's good to see you. It is good to be here, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. So, well, you're, I mean, this is as much yours as it is mine. It's just, I, I get to talk first, I guess. So speaking of first, uh, last week, we both made a, a few projections on some things that we thought were going to happen on, on the show. And it turned out uh, I was completely wrong and you knocked it out of the park, uh, at least on one thing, which was you said the case that Jennifer Walters was prosecuting would result in a mistrial, and I think you were right. You want to want to just start us off there? Absolutely. So at the end of the last episode, we saw that superhuman influencer, uh, Tatiana, uh, Titaniana, Tatiana, and the Titania, Titania. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, had had burst into the courtroom, um, and a fit of of rage was about to crush the jury. And so Jen Walters transformed into her She-Hulk persona and saved everyone. Yay. Yay. At which point the, her opposing counsel behind the scenes went and filed for a mistrial saying that the very fact that she saved the lives of the jury would have undue influence on them such they couldn't separate the arguments of the trial from the fact that one lawyer saved their life. Yeah. And while this seems like a bit of a stretch, mistrials happen every day. It's a procedural event that happens when something outside of the court's influence is having an impact. And it could be, for example, that your jury is reading social media about your trial when they've been explicitly warned not to, or that there's some type of contact, improper contact between the parties and the jury. And so anytime you have something like that, there's a procedural rule where a, one side can say, hey, this isn't a fair trial anymore. And the, if the judge agrees, a mistrial is declared. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about it is well, winning a mistrial motion doesn't necessarily mean that you've won the trial. It just means that you now get a, a second trial, a new trial with a new jury without that undue influence. And that's what's going to happen to this company. The benefit to them is with a mistrial motion that they now kind of get a second chance. Right. They get to see what arguments were brought out by Jen Walter's side. They get to see if they thought those arguments were persuasive to the jury and maybe come up with a new approach. Although there are some things that won't change. There are certain bits of evidence that they won't get to bring in because they might have already been excluded by order in the prior trial. So it's all gamesmanship, and we'll see that a lot, I think, in this series. Yeah. But it was definitely one that was just immediately apparent once we saw that in the first episode. Yeah, definitely a lot of gamesmanship, from, especially from the GLK&H lawyers. That seems to, to be uh, their MO for how they represent their clients and yeah, and, went on the technicalities. Yeah. yeah. It, it, well, they're definitely, if you're on trial, those are the guys you want in your corner. Yeah. 
So one of, one of the first things that I noticed uh, of the show was that there was a bar, an attorney themed bar called Legalese. And uh, so what, what did you think of the, the bar there? First, uh, it was a great pun. So Legalese <laughs> is uh, how we talk about the, the fancy formal language that lawyers often use, especially yep. in written form. Here to uh, four. Which, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes that language is important. Not yeah. all the time. And then the bar itself was named Legal Ease, as in like, take it easy. I found that it would be a great pun. There are kind of often locations where lawyers might congregate. And those tend to be around courthouses. They're the center of many towns, but they're also the center of a lot of the legal proceedings that happen. If you're not in your office, you're in the courthouse. And so we do often see businesses related to lawyers around courthouses. Uh, it could be a bar like the Legal Ease. It could be um, supply stores. Like in Canada, for example, lawyers have a very specific dress code. They appear wearing a certain type of robe. And so there are stores around the courthouse here in Vancouver that actually cater to lawyer clothing and other lawyer paraphernalia that is required as a part of the rules up here. I was joking with uh, some folks around here that uh, if I were to open up a legalese type bar, it would have to also be a karaoke bar because I don't know if the lawyers you work with, but all the ones I work with seem to flock to the karaoke bars. So uh, drinks and karaoke. Litigators love attention. <laughs> oh. They're used to being kind of front and center on stage. That is true. I, I guess I hadn't thought about that, but uh, yeah, any, anytime you can give them a microphone, they will take it, right? <laughs> so while at the bar, there was a common thing that you hear from a lot of, especially younger lawyers, and that was Jennifer notes that she racked up some six figures in student loans. And, you know, one of the articles I've read recently was the announcement that uh, I think it was Columbia Law School in New York is now over $100,000 a year for tuition and expenses. And uh, I mean, so it's not just and not just private schools. My alma mater, which is a public school, University of Oklahoma, when I uh, started, uh, we'll see, um, uh, 28 years ago in 1994, Law school was $100 per credit hour, and currently I found out it's something like eight and a half times that amount. So law school is pricey. Law school is very, very expensive. If we look at the ABA's model of the legal profession, we see that most law students are coming out with six-figure law school debt. The 100 k tuition that you were talking about for Columbia, that doesn't include living expenses. Yeah. And most law schools actually do not allow law students to work for at least their first year of law school. So we see that a lot of law students end up with a huge amount of debt. And some of the things that popped out later in the episode to me about that was um, the disparity in the types of law firms that we saw, mm -hmm. just little tiny glimpses of, and how a lot of them do not have the jobs and compensation that supports a six-figure student loan debt. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's actually a real problem that we have lawyers struggling under debt load and an industry that's not really set up to carry that debt load 
for the requirements that we're imposing on law students every every class every year. So because of the mistrial, poor Jennifer gets fired as a prosecutor, which I think was uh, completely unfair. As, as she said, you know, mm-hmm. what was I supposed to do? Let that uh, table crush the the jury. And but uh, and, and you mentioned that in the subsequent interviews that she did in trying to find new employment, that you just slowly see the type of law firm, the the style go down and. Yeah, there there was something that I had uh, a few weeks ago. We did an interview with uh, Carrie Ben from Law Three Hundred and Sixty, and she talked about mm-hmm. the summer associates and just the amount of pay range that they have, which some actually volunteer and some get equivalent of like two hundred thousand dollars a year for their time. So there's a big mm-hmm. disparity in what lawyers can make a year. And I think the average here in Texas is something like 90 K. Wow. Just for a summer associate for three months. Yeah. No, I mean, amazing for, for, yeah, I'm talking about a salary for a full-time lawyer on average Uh, in Texas is $90,000 a year. So it's, uh, it's not necessarily the, the, the job to go into if you think you're going to be, you know, super rich. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a huge disparity. We call it the bimodal distribution of salaries for lawyers where um, lawyers in big law, which is what we call like the biggest law firms, uh, is oftentimes hundreds of thousands of dollars, even before you make partner. And then there are the lawyers in sm- solo and smaller firms where the average salary is closer to $60,000. And those polls and salary distribution is something that not a lot of people know about lawyers. And it does impact the type of services that you can get from a lawyer, where they are on those salaries. And so as Jennifer is interviewing for a new job, we see she's in the white shoe law firm with the big office and all the fancy art on the wall. And then it it kind of has some <laughs> signals that you can see that she's yeah. moving maybe a little bit down the income stream where now they have a bunch of law books still. They've got a library, right? But they're looking good. And then it jumps to a wall behind her of file cabinets. Yeah. So they, they don't even have the space in their law firm to have their own file cabinet room. It's in the lawyer's office. And then they jump below that, and um, it's very clear that she's in uh, some place that, that might seem to be struggling a little bit. The lighting yeah. looks bad. Looks like it's kind of the, a basement. Yeah, it looks kind of like a basement in terms of the lighting and the wall. Um, and there are loose papers and banker boxes ever, which I got to be honest, every law firm is going to have that. It's just whether or not you can hide it. Yes. Uh, yeah. And so just watching those those subtle signals as she was interviewing was apparent to me that these people do know that different law firms exist and they operate in uh, whole different classes of income streams and the people they service. And they were trying to bring that out in the, the subtlest of ways. Yeah. So she does end up going back to the legalese bar by herself after being fired and uh, and then being told that she can't get a job because she's a superhuman and they don't need that yeah. distraction. And then it, uh, lo and behold, she runs into Mr. Holloway from GLKNH and is offered a job specifically because she is a superhuman. So I guess if you can't fight them, join them, right? Yeah. And the offer itself is really interesting. We definitely know that um, Holloway – 
has a very interesting approach to employee management. Yes. Uh, he, <laughs> he does not seem to be empathetic no. to Jennifer's dire straits with her student loans and not having a job. Um, and clearly has designs on utilizing her for his own benefit. Yes. Right. She, she's a tool that he plans to use. And so there are certain things that he's actually doing to her that might be indicative of a big law partner. Big law partners make their money often by leveraging younger attorneys. And then the younger attorney's work is charged at a certain hundreds of dollars per hour. Some of that is pocketed by the partner. We call that uh, profit per partner. It's a really important me metric in big law law firms. Then some of it's used to pay like the salary of the younger lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. But it oftentimes creates this view from law firm partners that junior associates, those younger lawyers, are tools. They're disposable. There's always a class of lawyers that you can hire, right, coming out of law school. And it definitely creates an odd power dynamic that oftentimes can be really toxic. And yeah. so it's interesting to see how that plays out um, when you have a lawyer with Jennifer's really unique abilities that you're trying to leverage, right? Yeah. Is she going to be somebody who is so talented, so unique, so media friendly that she could just walk? Yeah. And will that change the dynamic in the future? Uh, there are a couple of requirements that is, are being imposed on Jennifer Walters as a part of this job. Uh, the first of which is they want her to be in her She-Hulk persona as a part of this. Uh, legally yeah. speaking, I, I was trying to figure out, like, what's at play here? And one of the, the interesting things about this narrative of She-Hulk is that she is in part a Hulk because of her unique genetic background. She's the cousin of Bruce Banner, the Hulk. They have some apparently some similar unique genetic traits that enable them to Hulk out. So are we running into the genetic information privacy issues that exist within the United States and that you can't require the disclosements of that, that there are certain storage requirements around that? Uh, does it feed into the American with Disabilities Act? And there are certain things about a person's health that you aren't allowed to ask or make conditional as a part of offering somebody a job. Mm -hmm. Well, at the same time, medical conditions can be a legitimate reason for somebody not to be hired, right? If a job, for example, requires uh, standing for several hours a day, the ability to lift a certain amount of weight, uh, and, and somebody unfortunately cannot do that, that, it could be that they're not the right fit for a job. There's no way to reasonably accommodate them. Um, I can't think of a lawyer role that requires you to be like seven foot tall, green, and can bench press a boulder. <laughs> but if anybody can come up with it, I bet it's Holloway. Yeah, I, the, only, oh. the only parallel that I could even kind of come up with was let's say somebody can either use uh, crutches or a wheelchair mm -hmm. and being told while you're here, you can only use crutches because we want you stand, we want you standing. We want, we want you to present in a different way. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's kind of what I was drawn a parallel to, but I don't know that, uh, I mean, a good lawyer could shoot a big hole right, right through that. I'm sure. There's, there's definitely that. Uh, there's another one that we could take a look at and that's jobs that have an imposed dress code. Mm. 
True. And so there's a lot of uh, case law on like retail industries, uh, restaurants, for example, that have a dress code for their employees. Um, and it's part of the branding for the restaurant, right? We have either um, our our servers dress in a certain costume. Right. Uh, you can think of them being done at like a fancy level or also being done at a somewhat exploitative level, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But the case law is very clear. If we are consistent on imposing the dress code across employees, it's not necessarily exploitative. Right. Now, the problem we're seeing with Jen Walters is there's only one She-Hulk. So imposing a dress code of big and green on her, <laughs> is that something that's being done consistently throughout the law firm? That might be an issue yeah. that she could exploit at some point in determining whether or not she just wants to be that way all the time. Yeah. Well, as they were walking through and and as uh, Mr. Holloway was apparently saying something that is probably going to come back and bite Jennifer in, in her green rump later in the season, mm-hmm. as they were walking through, did you see the research library? That was I there? saw it. I, I knew <laughs> that you would bring this up. Yeah. I love that. So, yeah, yeah, immediately, just like I did with the bookshelf last week, where I went through and I looked and, and tried to identify as many things as I could. Uh, same thing, I did a screenshot as they walked past the law library, which uh, which actually is referenced a lot in the comic books, is that mm. their research slash law library is actually made up of comic books because in the Marvel universe, comic books are actual kind of historical representation of things that have happened with superhumans. Um, yeah, so, they're licensed material, yeah, right? Yeah. And so they're kind of like mini autobiographies. Exactly, exactly. Mm. So if you saw Into the Spider-Verse, uh, there was a, a little bit of it there where as one Spider-Man was was coming at, uh, coming out, there was the, Sp- the Spider-Man comic books that basically paralleled what he was going through. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of people that were also looking at that collection and you see a number of things from uh, – and it's really a lot of the things that you would expect because with the MCU, they're very good about keeping a storyline going. So uh, apparently there were things – lots of uh, Scarlet Witch. So Wanda was there, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor – I believe there was a Moon Knight issue in there. Interesting. So it basically just parallels the only thing, and I couldn't make it out myself, but Mm -hmm. uh, someone pointed out or thought that they saw up on the top shelf of that was a Squirrel Girl comic book, which is not a character that's been out yet, but is is a good friend of Ms. Marvel. In the comics storylines. Yeah, yeah, in the comics storylines. So it would make sense that down the road in phase five or six that we will mm-hmm. see Squirrel Girl, which uh, is a fun character. Yeah, definitely a lighthearted romp yes. in all of her different storylines. Yeah. So, and and that's actually one of the things that I enjoy about these, these four-color comic universes. As you can tell, He's like amazing, expansive tales, right? right. Um, alien invasions in New York. And then you can have these lighthearted romps where somebody has the proportionate strength of a squirrel and a tail. Uh, and how does she get through her day? Yeah. So <laughs> Love, it. Love it, it. There's room for all of those stories. And, and She-Hulk is kind of where they come together in one place. Yeah, yeah. 
So as we're walking through, we see Jennifer's office. Yeah. Oh, man. There there would be people that I know that would kill to have that corner office because that's something that, well, I guess she is, quote unquote, the practice group leader of the superhuman law division. So yeah. practice group leaders tend to get corner offices. Was there anything in the office that popped out to you? You know, a lot of it was just space, to be perfectly honest. Um, and space. Uh, space is at a premium when it comes to law firms. They actually spend more per employee for space than almost every other professional industry. And so the stats are, are pretty staggering. Something like $900 per square foot in an office space, which is uh, anybody who, who follows corporate real estate is like, wow, that is way too much. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, and yet... For law firms operating in the GLKH environment, right, the presentation is often part of the service. Right, It gives a, a sense of prestige to your client. It gives a sense of well-being to know that they've hired these high-priced attorneys on behalf of them. And so uh, we talk about game theory and gamesmanship a lot, but – we're going to see that a lot of the practice of law, both in the courtroom and outside of it, is how do you handle yourself? Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to continue there. Yeah, what did you see in there that jumped out at you? So the one was, yeah, same with you. The the size mm -hmm. of it, I, I don't think I've ever seen someone that has a cooler in their office that doesn't have – some kind of liquor in it instead of just the uh, spring water that that was there that may that may be a Disney Plus kind that of could thing. be a it could be a Disney influence it could be uh that their Jen has her own budget with which to stock it uh, and it hasn't been done yet true right true speaking yeah. of budget she did talk about because she is uh, has to be in She-Hulk form she has to budget now for a whole new wardrobe so but yeah. uh, Nikki her paralegal who she got to come over with her. That was one of her, in fact, it may have been the only demand that she had in taking the job, mm -hmm. which uh, Holloway said he could care less who her paralegal was. Another uh, instance of his management style. Um, yeah. He's he's what uh, some people would call the big picture leader, that he's, he doesn't care about the little stuff. He cares about the big stuff. Yeah, just get uh, it get it on my desk. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but the mm -hmm. fact that he had uh, had on the phone had fired one person and then reassigned another person to Minneapolis because they hate the cold also unquote, shows you what yeah. kind of uh, uh, what kind of leader he is. Not a lot of empathy. Yeah, I think he's a throwback to the pre two thousand eight law firm leaders. Mm. Um, and so the and so when the had the big recession. In 2008, there was a push for a, a, a you know, a, a gentler hand in leadership in, in large law firms than had been to that point. And so, uh, and I think, uh, I think you're seeing that in, in leadership now. I think so. It's actually a, a bit of a, a self-own. So yeah. what we saw in 2008 is a lot of law firms just did some, some pretty indiscriminate firing of lower level positions yep. and what happened was there was nobody then kind of rising through the ranks of experience to become the next generation of replacement partners and law firms really do operate on this cycle of bringing in fresh blood some of them become rainmakers they create business and 
those rainmakers then kind of carry the rest of the law firm, especially the partners who are sucking up that profit. When we hit the point a couple of years later after the Great Recession, uh, where there was nobody coming up into partner because they had fired all their young lawyers, yeah. law firms really had to start thinking about how do we create a law firm that can continue? And so we're seeing changes in office use. We're seeing changes in mentorship and training. And we're seeing changes in hiring practices. And all of those things uh, have been carried forward now into the pandemic era where work from home now became a part of law firm operations. Mm -hmm. And we're going to keep seeing it. So before we leave the office, I wanted to uh, point out the gifts that uh, Pug, their fellow attorney in the uh, superhuman law division, brings them a gift basket for the office. Now, one of them is either a re-gift or it's just a common thing that litigators have, which is the see you later litigator mug shows back up in that gift basket. I'm going to step out on a ledge here, and the thing I really want to talk about is the map to the best bathrooms to poop in. So that <laughs> Yeah, that jumped out at me as a really odd thing to give, like a new colleague. Yeah, well, and especially yeah. two women. I, you know, coming from a man, two women, it's not something I would do. Yeah, uh, that, I totally that, agree. That's one of those things where if you have to ask if this is appropriate, then it's not, and don't do it. Uh, mm -hmm. Which is, you know, words to live by in, in a law firm. If if you have to ask somebody if this is appropriate, just don't do it. Just yeah. <laughs> but since he did, let's talk about it. And so here's my thoughts on that. And mm -hmm. that is uh, for someone who has worked in large law firms for the, for almost 20 years now, this is a high-stress environment. And when you need to go poop, you don't want people around you. So my guess is this is the quiet bathroom off in the corner somewhere that clients don't go to. Uh, so I think, you know, there's there's certain things you just don't want clients to hear. I can understand that. It might be far away from the partners you're interacting with as well, right? And so you're less <laughs> likely to have an awkward so. conversation to or from your place of yep. business. Oh. Yeah, and you, you don't want somebody recognizing your shoes later. So. Exactly. <laughs> so what, what, what were your thoughts on, on that? Was there anything that popped up? Uh, well, I was wondering if they were actually trying to set the new colleague up as uh, somebody who does have issues with social grace. Maybe. Right. Uh, and what might be the reason behind that? And then we get to discuss a different type of diversity within law firm exactly. environments. And yep. so, because uh, it's such an odd standout moment of communication that I really felt like they were trying to set something up for later with that new colleague. Yeah, it was really interesting at how appreciative that Jen and Nikki looked for having that map. So. Yeah, yeah. Which admittedly, <laughs> a new office, yeah, yeah. you're going to need to know where to go when it's time to go. There are just certain internal politics and functions that you that you want to know about. So well, hopefully we didn't we didn't cross a, a, a TMI line there, but I uh, oh. thought it would be kind of fun to, to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Do you want to jump into the Emil Blonsky case, the abomination? Absolutely. Yeah. So it does seem like they are setting up She-Hulk to be like a continuing procedural. So it's not going to be the case of the week, but some ongoing cases. This first one starting out is Emil Bronsky, uh, which is interestingly a callback to a character from a much earlier Marvel movie mm -hmm. 
kind of before they set up the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. And so the fact that they're kind of bringing in or retconning this character into the current continuity was kind of fun. And so this character is a gamma irradiated, super powered individual, just like Hulk and She-Hulk. And in his case, his super name is the Abomination. He has been incarcerated in a very strict prison environment for, I'm not sure the number of years that they've mentioned. And he's now looking for parole. So to be released under his own recognizance. And there are a couple issues that popped up as a part of this. One, can Jennifer Walters represent someone who is in jail in part because they attacked a family member of hers? Is this a conflict of interest? So technically, this is not a conflict of interest under the ethical rules. She does not necessarily have information about the interaction that led to the incarceration. She could, right? She could have had like backroom discussions with her cousin, the Hulk, on what happened and why it happened, but we don't have that background. But what was interesting is they brought up the, the issue of conflict waiver, and this does exist. And that is a client who knows that a lawyer or a law firm has a conflict of interest can choose to waive their objections to that conflict of interest. So importantly, and this is what they didn't include, is oftentimes it's recommended that that client get a second opinion from an independent lawyer Mm -hmm. in order to ensure that they are informed when giving consent to this conflict waiver. We don't necessarily see that happening And so it could still be an issue in the future. Is Emil Bronsky waiving the conflict of interest without giving informed consent? I don't think that's going to happen. I think there's a reason all of these individuals are coming together and we've yet to see it emerge within the story itself. But I think they want Jen Walters there for a reason beyond the conflict of interest. And so they're just going to ignore that whole point. Yeah. And since I deal with conflicts in my day-to-day job, one of the mm-hmm. things that is interesting here that you don't get normally in a, in a large law firm environment is usually there's an opposing side. So when yeah. you talk about conflicts, the, the conflicts tend to be one side against the other. Either we've represented both sides and we need to get both sides to agree to waive that if they think it's in their best interest. Uh, but here there's just one party And the conflict is internal with the Mm -hmm. lawyer themselves. And so Jennifer brings it up, which she should. Lawyers, whenever they have a conflict, they have the legal duty to identify that conflict and do whatever it is that they need to do, whether that's creating an ethical wall that bars them from knowing anything about that if, if their firm represents them, or it's doing anything that would relieve the parties involved to understand one there's a conflict here's what we're here's what we're going to do about it and of course the parties themselves mm-hmm. just like with most things in in America you can contract your way into anything and, and yeah. basically by signing a waiver you sign a contract with the other parties that says we understand that and we are waiving our right to bring this up as an issue later on 
it's something that's very common in large law firms just because we represent so many clients that we have entire teams dedicated to the conflicts process. For us, it's both looking at the clients themselves and the matters that they're bringing. And then uh, one other thing that we do with conflicts here is whenever we hire somebody, we also run conflicts because when you bring somebody in, you bring everything with them as well. All their conflicts. Exactly. Exactly. Conflict sounds uh, mundane and and boring, but uh, it can be very interesting at times. Whole bunch of paperwork involved. <laughs> exactly. Every time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So the matter itself is a. Uh, again, you you mentioned that it is a parole hearing. Yep. I found it interesting. It's some of the advice that uh, Jennifer gave. Uh, one, uh, I think she implied, please don't read the haikus to the parole board that uh, that he had yeah. created. Um, although uh, it was it was mentioned by uh, Bruce Banner or Smart Hulk that uh, he actually appreciated those uh, kind haikus. He, he appreciated that, that the haiku. <laughs> yeah. So the a parole hearing is going to take a look at um, do we see evidence of rehabilitation on the part of the convicted individual, and also are they going to be a harm to themselves and others outside of the prison environment. And what is the likelihood of recidivism? How likely are they to engage in crime again? And all of these will be metrics that'll be weighed on Emil Bronski if he does get a parole hearing, which is one of the things we haven't established yet. But they did leave with a bit of a cliffhanger at the end <laughs> where it looks like there is evidence of Emil Bronski having escaped prison at some point. Yeah. Uh, and they included a scene from the Shang-Chi movie. Mm-hmm. I know I'm mispronouncing that. Where there was Wong, the character from the Doctor Strange movies, in a kind of Fight Club-esque tournament yes. against the Abomination. Uh, anybody who's seen that movie, which is a great movie, I highly recommend it, also knows that there's a little bit more going on right. in the relationship between Wong and Emil Bronsky. And I think my prediction for the upcoming episode is that we're actually going to see that this is part of the rehabilitation process for Emil Bronsky. Mm. It might be his court-mandated therapy (laughs) that uh, is taking the unusual superhuman approach that only happens in a four-color universe. Yes, yes. I, you know, I hadn't even thought of that, so I'm going to be interested in watching the next episode to see if that comes to fruition or not. I also want to find out who is Bronsky's seven soulmates that he's found through the pen pal system in, in prison. I, I wonder if yeah. there, there's something there as well. I totally agree with you. I think the the fact that it's a highly specific number, seven soulmates, mm-hmm. makes me wonder whom they're setting up for that. Yeah. Uh, and is it going to be like some future supervillain club that we don't know about yet? <laughs> well, definitely, a, uh, I think a lot coming uh, to us over the next, well, I think this is a, is this a 10 episode series? Is that what it? I think it's eight. Oh, is it? Okay. But I'm looking forward to however many are left. Yeah, absolutely. So we're still looking for some advice from uh, the listeners out there. Maybe you can give us some suggestions on some real life superhuman lawyers that, that are out there. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily uh, have to be anyone extremely notable that people would know off the top of their heads, but 
uh, if you've had interactions with, with someone who you think has gone above and beyond, and just let us know. And Joshua, I know you mentioned uh, gamma radiation earlier again. Yeah. I did have one listener uh, reach out to me and, and say that uh, gamma radiation is real. Uh, there is such a, a thing as gamma radiation, so uh, that's noted. But he also did point out that it will not turn you into a giant seven-foot-tall green hulk. What they describe as gamma radiation in the Marvel Cinematic Universe clearly does not conform with the laws of <laughs> physics in our real world. And so I, I do think we have to we have to describe it as separate yes. than actual gamma radiation. Exactly, exactly. Well, yeah. I am looking forward to watching episode three. If anyone wants to reach out to us, I can be reached at G Lambert or Glambert on Twitter. Joshua, what about you? Uh, my Twitter handle is at Joshua Lennon, L-E-N-O-N. And we actually have a podcast uh, Twitter account too. It's a superhuman pod. So just reach out to us at any of those three locations and we'll talk to everybody next week. Stay super, everyone. Mm-hmm.